Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, well, last week we started this journey where we um, are going to talk about foundations of the faith compared to um, cults and world religions. And last week we started with the Bible and what the Bible teaches about itself. And we talked a lot about the inerrancy and inspiration and authority of Scripture. And we talked about translation issues and how the Bible came to be. And we talked about all... We got really deep about the English translations of the Bible and all that stuff. Come on in, ladies. Um, And so tonight we are going to talk about God. So that's a good Sunday school answer. So if I ask you a question, you just say, God, and you got, no. <laughs> so if, if, if we were to go out on the streets of Sterling or northeastern Colorado today, and we were to ask people, just a, just a gener- generic question, who do you think God is? We would probably have a lot of different answers. A lot of different answers. Now, if we were to go into Denver, we'd probably have a whole lot more different answers if you were to go to India, like Dave and I have done before, and you were to ask people, you know, a lot of different answers. If you were to go to Saudi Arabia, you're going to get a lot of different answers. And so what we're going to look at tonight is um, the basic, basic, basic foundational truth of Christianity. And if we don't get this truth right, we don't get God right. And if we don't get God right, we don't get the salvation right. And if we don't get salvation right, we don't get heaven right. And if we don't get heaven right, we don't get to go there. So we got to, this is like foundational stuff, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the Trinity tonight, okay? Now, I don't expect you to fully grasp the Trinity because I don't fully grasp it. But we must believe it. There's a difference between understanding it and believing it, right? There's a lot of mysteries that we don't quite fully understand, but the Bible teaches. So let me give you a working definition. And then what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at some scriptures that teach the Trinity. We're going to look at three foundations of the Trinity and how if you get those foundations wrong, you get a heresy. And we're going to look at some other world religions and how they get God wrong, like Hinduism and Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and things like that. So let's just give a definition of the Trinity. Within the one being, that is God... There exists three divine persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are co-equal and co-eternal, okay? So you need to get your Bible out because we're going to start looking at some scriptures that teach the Trinity. So let's just go right from the very beginning and let's go to Genesis 1.26. This first section here, I want you in your Bible. The rest of the time they're going to be on the screen and they're going to be on your handout, but I want you to dive into the scriptures so that you can look at these yourself. And if you like to write in your Bible, some of you still have Bibles you write in, others you still swipe or flick or turn on whatever copy of God's Word you have. But if you have a pen tonight, you may just want to, it may be helpful for you in your Bibles on these passages of scriptures out to the side in the margin, maybe just write a note to yourself, Trinity. This teaches the Trinity. It's helpful sometimes as you're going through, if somebody asks you, where's the Trinity in the Bible? By the way, the word Trinity, if you were to look in a concordance for the word Trinity, the word Trinity is not in the Bible per se. It's a Latin word. So the word Trinity is not in the Bible. The concept of the Trinity is, okay? So let's look at Genesis 1.26. 
This is right from the beginning when God is creating humans. In Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over, all, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God one, right? God said, let us. Who's the us that he's talking about? Himself, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. The, let us. Now, if it, was just, if it wasn't the Trinity being taught there, he would say, let me make man in my image. But he says, let us make man in our image. Okay, so that's not an explicit teaching of the Trinity, but by the fact that he says, let us, there's a multiplicity of persons there, but still one God. Okay? All right, let's move to the New Testament. We've got a little bit fuller teaching. Let's go to Matthew, and let's look at the Great Commission, because this is probably the most famous passage of Scripture that actually has all three names of the Trinity. Matthew 28, 19, and 20, what's famously been called the Great Commission. You should just underline this anyway, because this is the mandate to the church of what we're supposed to be about. So even if you don't write Trinity out the side, write my job, our job as a church, the most important thing we can, we're supposed to be doing. So Matthew 28, 19, and 20. I'll, make, I'll wait till you guys all get there. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Do you see all three persons of the Trinity there? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They're listed out. So you have a reference to the Trinity there listed out, the three persons. Okay? All right, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 and 6. This is a teaching that Paul has on spiritual gifts. And if you remember from last, I think it was last spring that we did um, 1 Corinthians, um, we, we covered this in a little bit more detail in relation to spiritual gifts. But you notice the, the wording here. In verse, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same, what's, what does it say there? Spirit. And there are a variety of services, but the same... Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. What do you have there? Spirit, Lord, and God. Okay, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay, let's turn to 2 Corinthians, the very last verse of 2 Corinthians 13, 14. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. You will also have a listing of all three persons of the Trinity there. So 2 Corinthians 13, 14, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You see all three there? Jesus Christ the Son, God the Father, Holy Spirit. So we've looked at one, two, three, four, four passages of Scripture. Three of those explicitly list all three persons. Okay, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Because there's an argument from the cults that would say, the reason I'm showing you these scriptures is because the argument from the cults would be this. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, so therefore it's not a biblical doctrine. 
It's a made-up doctrine that the church made up. So let me ask you a question. Although the term Trinity is not in the Bible, is that definition in the Bible, within one God there exists three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are co-equal and co-eternal? Yes, that teaching is there, but it doesn't say Trinity per se. Okay, So the Scripture teaches the three-in-oneness of God, but it doesn't use, necessarily use the word Trinity. Okay, So let's look at Ephesians 4, 4-6. through 6. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. Do you see all three persons there? Spirit, Lord, and Father. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> and sometimes the order's not, it's not always Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Sometimes the order is mixed around depending on how the author words it. But all three persons are there. First <clears throat> Peter 1, chapter 1, verse 2. It's in Peter's greeting. First Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Well, let's just start in verse 1 because it's kind of in the middle of a sentence. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. Do you see all three there? That's very explicit. God the Father, sanctification in the Spirit, and Jesus Christ. So you have all three persons of the Trinity there too. Father, Son, Spirit. Now let's go to Jude, the little book between Revelation and 3 John, Jude. And let's look at verse 1. This is more implicit than explicit, okay? So you kind of have to fill in a little bit of a blank here, although he doesn't mention the Holy Spirit. You, you, you kind of have to assume something here but in, in verse 1 Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ now it sounds like there's only two right there right God the Father and Jesus Christ there's only two persons of the Trinity listed right there right but who's the one that calls us to salvation the Holy Spirit so it's kind of an implied the Holy Spirit it doesn't say the Holy Spirit go down to the very end of verse 20 in 21, later on, he's going to mention the Holy Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. You see all three there? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Okay? So I have just given you one, two, three, four, five, six, seven passages of Scripture that teach the Trinity without using the word Trinity, but the doctrine's there, right? Okay, so let's look at the historical definition of the Trinity, and let's look at the three foundations that have to be there. If any of these are missing, you lose the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, and you have a cult or a false belief system. So it's kind of like this, and I I think I've maybe drawn this before. Let's say you have a three-legged stool. What happens if you take one of the legs out? Falls over. It, it doesn't. It, well, it's not going to stand up. So if any of these three are missing, 
you've got a cult or you've got another world religion. So you have to have all three. Okay, so what are these three bedrock truths that have to be in our definition of the Trinity? Well, the first one's probably the easiest. And here's the first one. There's only one God. One in essence or substance or being. That's a, that's a key word. God is one in essence or being. Do you, do you guys understand what we mean by one in essence or being? That he, he's one. He's not, he's not different gods, but he's one God in his person. Or not necessarily in his person, but in his essence. Okay, let me give you some scriptures here. This time we'll have them on your sheet here. This is the Shema. And why is it called the Shema? Because the Hebrew word for hear is, is the word Shema. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. What does it say about God? He is one. And Jesus even reiterates this, doesn't he, in the New Testament? When they come to him and say, what's the greatest commandment? You've heard it said, you know, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Jesus, you know, God didn't say, hear, O Israel, I am many gods. He says, I am one. Okay? Isaiah 45, 5 through 6. I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the, wet, from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods. And Paul says all other gods are so-called gods. They're idols. So there's, there's really only one God. And then James 2.19 says this, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Contrary to popular opinion, demons have pretty good theology. That doesn't mean that they're saved. But demons know the Bible. Demons know the scriptures. They distort it. They don't obey it. But right here it says the demons know that. The demons know there's one God. You do well to believe that. It's basically what James is saying is that's, that's Christianity 101, that there's one God. Even the demons know that. Okay? So if you deny the oneness of God, what's the heresy? Polytheism. Okay, what's poly? Many. Theism is God. So many gods. So let's talk about Hinduism for a moment because we have a partnership in India. And as a matter of fact, you guys can be praying for me. I'm going February 20th through the 28th to India, um, which I need to start working on my visa tomorrow. Um, And I'm going to go out there and do a retreat with our team and then go into the villages for a couple of days. But um, one of the things, and you can talk to Dave as well, is, I mean, let's just be honest, Dave. Are there gods all over the place there? Every time you turn around the corner, there's a temple of some type of God. The missionary, our partner, was telling me, uh, maybe it was back in the beginning of the, of the fall, how he, I, just got, he, I just got on a Skype call with him, and he said he just was coming out of the coffee shop, and he heard this ruckus and heard this huge noise, and he was like, what in the world is going on? Well, it was a Ganesh baptism, or Ganesh. You're like, what's Ganesh? Ganesh is the elephant god. And it was this huge, like, 15-foot-tall elephant that everybody was taking down the street, and they went out in the ocean to baptize the idol, and everybody was, you know, jumping up and down. And, but there's, like, elephant gods all over the place. When we went to um, the town, we, we went prayer walking in a town. We just walked through this, this town, and um, the, you, you go into, 
Picture, I don't, know, I, even know how to, I don't even know how to describe it to you. Picture, I'll draw it the best I can. And those of you listening on the internet or on podcasts, use your imagination. So, all right, here's a road. And just, just picture like trash and just stuff all over the place. And they have these little huts that are businesses. And so like this business right here may be somebody selling chickens. And like the chickens are out there and their flies are all flying around them. And this guy may be selling spices. And, and like so you just go from place to place and they'll be sitting down with like fruit out on a mat or something. And there's, there's cows walking around eating the trash. And there's people riding motorcycles and honking. And there's auto rickshaws running around. And, and so, you know, you go into these. So we went into a hardware store. Now, when you guys think of hardware store, what do you think? Home Depot or, okay, the hardware store was about the size of, ha- like, from where, Don- like, the, the, like, right here, and so, maybe not even that big, and so we walk in, and two, two tall white guys walk in, and the Indian guys are like, oh, wow, what are you doing, like, you're good customers, and so, um, what are you doing here, like, what are you doing in our town, and I'm like, I'm glad you asked, I said, we are walking around your town, just wanting to meet people, and to find out if you know Jesus. Oh, I know Jesus. I know Jesus. And then he brings somebody else. And he's, he's like, but I don't believe Jesus. I know Jesus, but I don't believe Jesus. And I said, well, tell me, who, who, do, you, who do you believe in? And then he started going through all these different gods. And, and, I, and I just started, I started to ask him, like, okay, what does this God do for you? Well, this God helps me with my family. What does this God do for you? Well, this God, you know. So all his gods did all these different things for him. And then I finally said, well, do you ever have peace that any of these gods are ever going to answer you? And then he got real quiet. He's like, I don't speak, you know, like, he's like, started to like not speak English anymore. And he's like, and he kind of shut it down and all his other friends were like listening. And I said, I tell you what, um, can I pray for you? Oh yeah, you pray for me. I said, well, how can I pray for you? Well, pray that, you know, just like basic stuff, pray for my health, pray for my family. And so I prayed for him, but I prayed the gospel. So I said, dear Lord, please help this man to understand that God is the only God. I mean, I just presented the whole gospel in my prayer and then we walked off. But there's gods all over the place in Hinduism. So let me give you just Hinduism 101 here. Brahmin, number one, one thing you need to know about India is it's a caste system. And the, what they call the forward caste or what the higher caste are. And the, so there's forward caste and lower caste. The, the highest caste in India are the Brahmins. They are the intellectuals. They are the power people. They're the ones that have, have elevated to the highest, highest level. And so in their view, God or Brahman is an impersonal ultimate unknowable force it's a spiritual reality so some hinduism personalized brahmins as brahma he's a creator with four heads symbolizing creative energy and then you've got vishnu preserver the god of stability and control and shiva the destroyer god of endings so there's kind of like a yin yang like a karma type thing and some gods can kind of get mad at each other and so most hindus worship a lot of vishnas um, Krishna, um, Ganesh. If you actually ask a Hindu how many different, whatever God's going to help them. Like when I ask our missionary, why are they worshiping these? Whatever God can help them. And so Hindus claim that there are 330 million gods. Now, here's the thing. When you go into the villages, it's a hybrid between tribal what's called animism, okay? It's tribal animism mixed with a little bit of Hinduism. So I, I, this is not on your sheet, but animism, does anybody know what animism is? 
It's the worship of ancestors and evil spirits. So a lot of these people are afraid that their dead uncle's going to come back and put a curse on them. So they always live in fear. And so, you know, even sometimes, I don't know if you guys saw any chicken sacrifices or any of the witch doctor stuff going on when you were, sometimes witch doctors will, you know, people will go to witch doctors to get, you know, help them get a curse. So um, here's the problem when you go present the gospel in India. When you present Jesus, what are most Hindus going to think? I like Jesus. I will add him to one of my gods. So if you go into a Hindu house, and Dave knows what I'm talking about. They have, they have, they'll have idols all over their house, different family idols. And they'll put a picture of Jesus up with all the other idols. And you know they're not a Christian yet because Jesus is just one of their many idols. You know they become a Christian when all of the idols are down and Jesus is the only picture. And, they're, and then they've gotten baptized. But in Hinduism, it's really hard to share the gospel because Jesus is just seen as one of many gods just added to their gods if he can help them. So, obviously, Hindus do not believe in the Trinitarian God. So, when we, one of the things that we did when we were there this past summer, we went into um, a home, Thad and I, and we spent three hours just doing some basic theology with these guys that were, like, not even Christians yet. And this one guy could not wrap his mind around the Trinity. I mean, for him, it was just so hard because he was used to 330 million gods. For, for him to think one God, three persons... It was mind-boggling. And so we had to spend a lot of time just, just breaking that down. But if you've grown up in a culture where there's gods and temples and everything all around you, the God of the Bible is really hard to figure out. So, so that we have a challenge when we do evangelism and missions in India because we're starting from a totally different cultural and religious foundation. Does that make sense? Any questions on India or Hinduism before we, we move on? All right, let's talk about Islam. There is one God in Islam, but he's called Allah. It's not God the Father. Allah is an impersonal God. Jesus was only a prophet. He was born of a virgin, but he was not the Son of God. So in a sense, you could say that Islam is monotheistic, but they're not Trinitarian. They don't believe in a personal father. They just believe that Allah is a God, one God, but he's, un, he's, he's kind of impersonal and mean. And you've got to kind of do a lot to please him. And at the end of the day, you don't know if you've done enough. Okay, so foundation number one, there is one God. If you get that wrong, you get polytheism, which is what Hinduism really is a big one out there. Here's number two. Distinct persons. Three distinct persons. They're one in essence, so it's one God in essence, but the, the triune God exists in three distinct persons. So let me just kind of define this for you. In other words, the Father is not the same person as the Son. The Son is not the same person as the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the same person as the Father. Okay? But they all share the same essence as God, right? So... Is the Father God? Yes. Is Jesus God? Yes. Is the Holy Spirit God? Yes. But are they three distinct persons? Yes. Do they all share the same Godhood of God? Yes. Okay? I'm not asking you to try to fully understand it. Just, just believe it. So, let's go to the Gospel of John, and I want to teach you the distinction between persons 
and the fact that they share the same essence in God. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about um, God the Father and Jesus the Son, but let's look at John 1.1. And I, I may have taught this before, but I'm going to teach you a little bit of Greek, just a little bit, not enough to scare you. So John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Okay, let's just ask some questions. Who is the Word? No, who is the Word? Jesus. Okay. So you have two terms there, right? The Word and you have God, which we assume is who? The Father. Okay. So in John 1.1, 1, 1, you have two persons, right? You have God the Father and Jesus the Son. Two distinct persons, right? Not the same person. But what does it say about Jesus? Jesus was God, right? But at the same time, Jesus was with God. So how can you be God and be with God at the same time? Unless you're God and you're a distinct person from the Father. Does that make sense? Do I need to back up? (laughs) Jesus is God. He shares the same essence as God, but he's not the same person as the Father. Does that make sense? Okay. In the beginning was the word. Now, let me just tell you the word was. It's in a Greek tense that means continuous action in the past tense. So you could really translate it. In the beginning, Jesus always was, which means what? He was never created. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Okay? So within John 1, 1, you have the Jesus is divine, or Jesus is is divine, or Jesus is God, but he's also separate, a separate person from God. But, they, but he shares equality with God, okay? Go to John 17, 24. I'm sorry, John 14, 26. John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name... He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Do you see three persons there? Who's speaking? Jesus. And what does he say is going to be sent? The Holy Spirit. And who's going to send the Holy Spirit? The Father. So you see three persons? Okay, so there are three distinct persons. The Father's different from the Son. The Son's different from the Holy Spirit. But they all share the same essence as God. Okay, John 17, 24. Turn there real quick. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. There was this love between the Father and the Son before the world was even created. So how can you love yourself? Well, you can, but there's two distinct persons. Okay? So the best example of this is Jesus' baptism. 
So let's go to Matthew 3, 16 and 17, and let's just see a visible example here of three distinct persons coming together and sharing Godhood. And this may, I mean, I know this is deep stuff, but it's, it's, it's truth. <laughs> okay. Matthew 3, 16 through 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Who's physically getting baptized? Jesus has a body. Is the Father getting baptized? Is the Spirit getting baptized? But is the Father there? Because it's His voice, right? Unless Jesus is a ventriloquist. Okay, the Father speaking, this is my beloved Son. Jesus is physically there getting baptized, but then what else is there? Or who else is there? The Holy Spirit descending like a dove. So in the baptism of Jesus, you have all three persons of the Trinity distinctly separate, but yet sharing the same essence as God. Okay? So, foundation number one, one God. Foundation number two, within this one God, there are three persons. Distinct persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Now, if we deny the personhood of the three persons, if we, dis- if we deny the distinct persons of the Trinity, we commit the heresy called modalism. I want to teach you about modalism tonight because modalism is alive and well in our world today. It's been around from the very beginning, but there are huge proponents of modalism today that you may not even know who are modalists. What in the world is modalism? Here's a definition of modalism. Okay, it comes from the word mode. Modalism claims that there's one person who appears to us in three different forms or modes. How is that different? There's one person. What does the Trinity say? There are three persons that all share Godhood. Modalism says there's one person who shows up in three different modes. So it'd be like this. I'm one person, right? And I may show up to Dawn as her husband. And I may show up to my boys as their father. And when I go hang out with my parents, I show up to them as, as their son. I'm playing three different roles or having three different modes, but I'm still the same person. That's not the Trinity. Because how many persons do you have? Three persons, not one, playing three modes. Okay? So this was called Sabellianism, named after the heretic Sabellius who lived in Rome. Um, so let me just ask you a question. Who literally died on the cross? Jesus. Who's literally seated at the right hand of the Father right now? Okay. Who's been sent to live inside us forever? Okay, so if there's modalism, how can that happen? Does that make sense? If one person's playing three roles, then it's going to be very difficult. Now, who believes this today? Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. The father was a role that isn't now. Yeah, we'll talk about. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. <laughs> Give me just one minute to get there. Yeah, you're you're exactly right. She knows things. <laughs> That's what happens when you live with the pastor. Whether she likes it or not, she knows things. I don't want to know these things, but he keeps talking about them. So, <laughs> who believes this today? The United Pentecostal Church otherwise known as Oneness Pentecostalism. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Oneness Pentecostal movement, but the most famous people is T.D. Jakes and Phillips, Craig, and Dean. 
So um, t- you guys know who T.D. Jakes is? Big time, like one of the biggest churches in Texas. He's an African-American pastor. He's um, written a lot of books. You go to Christian bookstores, his, his stuff is sold all over the place. He claims to be a oneness Pentecostal. He's not making, he's not hiding who he is. Phillips, Craig, and Dean, they're pastors of a oneness Pentecostal church. Um, what does the oneness Pentecostal believe? Let me give you their doctrinal statement, okay, on their website. I haven't put it on your sheet, but I'll just I'll read it for you. The basic and fundamental doctrine of this organization shall be the Bible standard of full salvation, full salvation, which is repentance, baptism in water by immersion in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remissions of sins, and baptism of the Holy Ghost with the initial sign of speaking with other tongues as the Spirit gives utterance. There is only one God who has revealed Himself as our Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, and as the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is God manifest in flesh. He is both God and man. Now you may think, at first glance, that doesn't sound too wrong. But what are the, how do they define salvation? What are the, you have to be baptized in order to be saved, and you have to speak in tongues. If those two things aren't true, then you're not a true Christian. And when you're baptized, you're only baptized in the name of Jesus. It's not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's baptized in Jesus' name only. Okay? So here's... They basically declare that the Godhead really consists of one person. So here's what they maintain. They maintain that the only real person in the Godhead is Jesus. That's why they're often referred to as the Jesus-only movement. They maintain that God exists in two modes, the Father in heaven and Jesus on earth, but they're the same person. Okay? The Father and the Son are the same person. The Holy Spirit is not even a person. He's merely a manifestation of Jesus' power. So they don't, even, they don't even believe that the Holy Spirit's a person. He's just a force. Okay? Does anybody have a problem with that based upon the doctrine of the Trinity? One person playing three roles, and a lot of times they'll say, well, the Father was from the Old Testament. Right now, Jesus is the only one that counts, and then the Holy Spirit's not really a person. He's just kind of the, the force that Jesus gives off. Okay? That's oneness Pentecostal, and that's modalism. So, are you okay, Jim? You're just groaning. So. Yes. Not, I don't pray for the Holy Spirit. I pray to the yes, and you should. You should pray to all three persons of the Trinity. Technically, you should pray to the Father in the name of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in my praying, I address all three persons. Sometimes I switch between them. Father, thank you for this. And I praise the Father for what the Father does. Jesus, thank you for this. Holy Spirit. And so, yeah, if it's just one person. Now, you're praying to one God who exists as three persons. You're not praying to three gods. Are we praying to three gods? One God, three persons. If you were in VBS this summer, that was one of our songs. One God, three persons. Does Lenny remember that? Because she helped me with one God, three persons. That was a good VBS. I taught the Trinity. I thought it was pretty good. Okay, so foundation number one, there's only one God, one in essence. Foundation number two, three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And here is the third one. 
Because you can, get, you can go that far and say, okay, I believe in one God and I believe in three persons, but you have to also believe this. Each person is fully God and that they are co-equal and co-eternal. Now, what do I mean by that? Now, has the Father always existed? Yes. Has Jesus always existed? Yes. Has the Holy Spirit always existed? Is the Father somehow higher than Jesus? Is Jesus somehow higher than the Holy Spirit? No, they're co-equal in the sense that they they share the same equality as God, and they're co-eternal in the sense that they are not created. Okay? Jesus is not a created being. Because what does John 1, 1, what did it say there? If you remember, by him all things were created. Okay, so let's look at a couple of other scriptures here that teach that Jesus is fully God. He shares equality with God. He's not created. And the reason I'm going here is because I'm going to share some heresies here in just a few minutes that all have to deal with, um, well, just hang with me and we'll get there. Okay, so Hebrews 1.3. He, that's Jesus, is the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's the radiance of God and the exact imprint. So what is that telling us? When it says Jesus is the radiance of God, it, doesn't, it means that Jesus shines forth who God is, and He's the exact imprint, meaning that Jesus is God. He's not the Father, He's the Son, but He's fully God. And fully man, but He's fully God. Colossians 2.9 is probably the most famous one. In Him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, how much more clear can you get there? In Jesus, the whole fullness of God, the whole fullness of, of deity dwells bodily. Okay, so Jesus is, Jesus has always existed. Jesus was never created. Jesus is fully God. So let's just say it this way. The Father is eternal and non-created. Jesus is eternal and He's non-created. The Holy Spirit is eternal. He is non-created. And all three are equal in being God. Okay? The Holy Spirit is God. Um, Psalm 137, or Psalm 139, 7 and 8. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. The implication is, I can't go anywhere to be outside of your spirit because your spirit is, is God. 1 Corinthians 2, 10-11. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Who's the only person that can know the thoughts of God? God. So the Holy Spirit is God. He's distinct from the Father, but He is God. Now, if we deny the co-eternality and co-equality 
of the three persons of the Trinity, we're going to commit many heresies, okay? These are ancient heresies that came about in the first three or four hundred years of the church, ancient heresies, and they rear their ugly heads all throughout history. And I'll, I'll give you the ancient heresy, and then we'll talk about the modern-day heresy. But you need to know these, okay? I think they're important. The first one is called Arianism, okay? named after a guy named Arius. What is Arianism? Arianism is the denial that Jesus is fully God. He was the first, quote-unquote, created being of God and is therefore subordinate to the Father. Where do they get this? Well, let's look at Colossians 1, 15-17, and let's, let me teach you some Greek because they don't understand Greek. Okay? He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things and in him all things to hold together. What they key in on is that word firstborn. Okay? Now, when you guys hear the term firstborn, what do you think? The what? Okay, the firstborn son of a family. But what do you also think? There was a beginning. Now, when Jesus... Well, we'll talk about this when we get to Jesus, so hold that thought. Does this term mean first created? No. The Greek term there, prototokos, the Greek term firstborn does not mean first created. That's what they believe. The, the cults believe that Jesus was the first created. That's not what the word means. It's used metaphorically throughout the Old Testament to refer to the title of the firstborn son who has full authority or the birthright to be the leader of the family. So it's a title. So when it says Jesus is the firstborn, basically what it's saying is Jesus is, the, is the, the one who has all authority and power and majesty because he is the, the one who holds the title of being the Son of God. It's not that Jesus was the first created being. Okay? Now why is that important? Because both Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons believe that Jesus was created. Okay? Let's talk about Mormonism for a minute. For a minute? Oh, come on. We can go on forever. <laughs> They call, here's the, all right, let's just stop. Okay. Here's the thing about cults. They use the same terminology we do, but they have very different definitions of what they mean. So you go talk to a Mormon and say, are you a Christian? Yes. Do you believe Jesus died on the cross? Yes. Do you believe salvation by grace? Yes. They will say yes to those things, but they have different meanings of who Jesus is and what grace is and what, what it's all about. So we have to define terms. So they use they call God Heavenly Father. Do we not call God Heavenly Father? Mormons call God Heavenly Father. But they believe that God is an exalted man with a physical body of flesh and bone. Joseph Smith said this, If the veil were rent today and the great God who holds this world in its orbit and who upholds all worlds and all things by his power was to make himself visible, I say if you were to see him today, you would see him like a man in form. Does God the Father have a body? No. Who's the only person of the Trinity that has a body? Jesus. Okay. 
He says in the Doctrine of Covenants, The Father has a body of flesh and bone as tangible as man's, the Son also, but the Holy Ghost is not a body of flesh and bones, but as a personage of spirit, were not so the Holy Ghost could not dwell in us. Here's what they believe. Jesus was the spiritual firstborn Son of God in the preexistence. Every person who was ever born on earth was our spirit brother or sister in heaven. This first spirit born to our heavenly parents was Jesus Christ, so he's literally our elder brother. God, since God's a man, and Mary had sex, and that's how Jesus was conceived, through a literal sexual relationship between God as a man and Mary. Okay? Let me give you some quotes. You're not supposed to get it. (laughs) He's also, let me give you some quotes here. Jesus is the only begotten physical offspring of God by procreation on earth. Jesus is the only person on earth to be born of a mortal mother and an immortal father. That is why he's called the only begotten son. Okay? Begotten. I was thinking about this when I was taking a shower today. Sometimes I think about theology in the shower. I'm like, I'm going to teach on this tonight, and I don't even know if they know what begotten means. Do you guys know what Like, this is an old King James word. It's from John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only... What in the world does begotten mean? Somebody tell me. Does anybody know what begotten means? You thought you did. Okay. Do we use that term anymore? What does it sound like? What does begat mean? Okay. Okay, so two people came together and had a child. Okay. That's not what the word means. Okay? Let me give you the word in Greek. It's called monogenes. What? Can't read it? It's M-O-N-O-G-E-N-E-S. You don't have to know the Greek, but let me tell you what it means. It means unique or one and only. So if you have an NIV, they've translated it pretty good. Who has an NIV? Read John 3.16 in NIV tonight. Not that the other ones are wrong. It's just I think the NIV kind of gets to the... We don't use the term begotten today, but the NIV has taken what this Greek term is and given it to us in what, what probably is the best translation. So somebody read that tonight. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Yeah. What does the NIV say? One and... That's really what the word begotten means, that Jesus is the one and only. It's not that he was first created. It wasn't that he was first came into existence it just means that there's only one son of god and it's jesus and he is he's got the title of the firstborn because he's the master and ruler but it doesn't have anything to do with him being created at all it's a title of his uniqueness as being the son of god now let me ask you a question most cults will believe jesus is the son of god but they believe he's god the son you got to believe both right he's the son of god but he's also god the son Does that make sense? Okay. We're going to talk more about Mormonism as we go on, but we're just talking basically about the Trinity tonight because I don't want to confuse you. But let's go to Jehovah's Witnesses. This gets even more confusing. The true God, according to Jehovah's Witnesses, is not a nameless God. His name is Jehovah. Okay. 
Here's what they say about the Trinity. The historic Christian doctrine of the Trinity is denied. Here's the quote. The dogma of the Trinity is not found in the Bible, nor is it in harmony with what the Bible teaches. It grossly misrepresents the true God. How would you respond to a Jehovah's Witness that says, what you believe as the Trinity grossly misrepresents the true God? And here's what they will call the Trinity. They call it the three-headed monster. So here's what you do. See those seven scriptures I showed you at the very beginning? Take them to them in their Bible and have them read it. Just ask them some questions. Do you see three persons here? And, and have them read it in their own Bible because it's there. They're just not, they don't, they're, only, they're only taught to read certain parts of the Bible to be able to go out. See, here's the way the Jehovah's Witness works. They get into heaven by, by meeting a quota system. And the quota is how many houses they go to and how much literature they get rid of. So they've got, that's why they come to your house all the time. They've got to keep doing that in order to, to, to make their quota, in order to, they won't be the 144,000 in heaven. They'll be the rest that, because that, that group's already gone. Um, but they are trained, and same things with Mormons, they're trained to stick to a script. And if you get them off the script, they get very restless. I had two Mormon missionaries come to my house. Well, this is like the first year we moved here. My parents were here, and we were barbecuing, and they came to my house, and it just wasn't a good time. And I said, listen, um, I said, you know what? I don't have time to talk to you today, but I'm the pastor. This is in our old building when it was kind of close to where we live. And I said, hey, we're, I'm in the pastor of Emmanuel's. You know, it's right over there across from Devonshire. Um, why don't you come sometime during the week, and we'll talk. Well, sure enough, they showed up. So they came into my office. <laughs> Sat down. Two young guys are probably 22. You know, of course, their name's Elder So and So or Bishop So and So. They don't use their real names. I don't know if you know that. Um, and so they came up on their bicycles and their white shirts and their little name tags, and and they sat down. And um, I mean, I totally blew. I, I totally. I started. Here's where I started with. I started with the absolute sovereignty of God and salvation, and they were like, "You." you talk different than a lot of pastors in this town that we've talked to. And I said, well, I'm coming from a different perspective on God's absolute sovereignty. And they couldn't have, they didn't have answers for what I was talking about. And then um, we, the guy, it was interesting because the guy that was, there's always a trainee with the main guy. The trainee was kind of like, he was getting rattled, you could tell. And when the trainee gets rattled, they don't show back up. They get him out so that he doesn't, they don't want him to get influenced. Because if he starts getting influenced and they're, they're losing their battle, um, and so they have to move him. They only stay in a place for six weeks because they don't. They know that if you get into a relationship, they can easily break you know break them away from the Mormon Church. And so we had a conversation. And so um, I went back and um, I, I did some research and I I wrote a letter to them and I, I had it ready, just presenting the gospel. And I took everything that the Mormons believe and tried to you know. And I gave that. They came back and they they brought the Book of Mormon this time to me. And they were, they were going around in circles. And finally, you know, after about an hour of talking, the young guy looks me in the eye and says, I think this is, I th- I think this is exactly what he said. He goes, enough beating around the bush. Why don't you right now get on your knees and pray and ask God to show you whether Joseph Smith was a prophet so you can experience the burning in the bosom? And at that point, I said, not on your life in my office am I going to tempt the Lord thy God. <laughs> And I said, I'm not going to do that. I said, I don't want to be rude, but our conversation's over. I said, I've not pressured you guys, and, and please don't 
don't make me put the Lord to the test. I'm not going to, I don't, Joseph Smith's not a prophet. I don't want the burning in the bosom. I'm not going to do that. And so they left. And then like the next week I saw them at Sonic and he had a different guy with him. That young guy that was there, he was gone. And so um, anyway, and this summer or this September at Sugar Beet Days when we were out there handing out. So like we're the only evangelical presence at Sugar Beet Days, you guys know. So we're handing out water and we're handing out gospel tracts and we're handing out Bibles. And, and, and the Jehovah's Witnesses are over there. And I don't know if you guys know this, but they, they, they go to Walmart a lot of Saturdays during the summer. And they stand there in front of the Walmart with their, having their Bibles. I don't know if you guys see them. They're all wearing their suits, and they come up, and they're, you know, my neighbors behind me are Jehovah's Witnesses. So they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty big and sterling. So let's go back to um, who Jesus is here with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus had three periods of existence. In his pre-human existence, he was called God's only begotten son because Jehovah created him directly. Jehovah created Jesus directly. Jesus is a created being. Okay. After Jesus was brought into, this is how they get around. Well, then you ask them the question, well, how do you deal with those passages that teach that Jesus was there at creation? We got an answer for you. Jehovah created Jesus and then Jesus created the rest of the universe. That's what they say. So after Jehovah brought him into existence, the word Jesus spent ages with God in heaven before becoming a man on earth. And it was that Jesus that actually was there at creation, but he was still um, a created being. And also, Jesus is also known as Michael the Archangel. He has a name. Okay? Well, in his preexistence, it was Michael the Archangel. Also... The personality of the Holy Spirit is denied um, in all of these. Um, in Mormonism, in Jehovah's Witnesses, and in, in even in some kind of, maybe even some evangelical groups without knowing it, they relegate the Holy Spirit to an it or to a force or to like a manifestation, but not to an actual person. We're going to get to the Holy Spirit, but can you grieve the Holy Spirit? Can you grieve in it? Can you resist the Holy Spirit? Can you resist in it? So the Holy Spirit's not a force or an it. It's a he, or he's a he, and he's not a force or a manifestation. He's a divine person. Okay, so Arianism is basically the view that Jesus was created. That's Arianism. It's an ancient heresy, but it shows itself up in the modern-day cults. Another heresy is called subordinationism. This view says that, and this word from subordinate, this view says Jesus is indeed divine. He's eternal, but he's not equal with the Father. He's inferior or subordinate. He's lower than. This was rejected at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. under the leadership of Athanasius. Okay. Adoptionism is another one that is a little weird. Jesus was an ordinary man, not divine, until his baptism, when he was anointed with the Holy Spirit and thus became a divine person at that point. So he lived for 30 years as a normal guy, but that is baptism. That's when he received the anointing and became divine. Now, I saw a clip with um, Victoria Osteen doing Lord's Supper, and she taught this. The word faith people, some in the hyper-charismatic word faith movement, 
they're so big on the anointing, they preach that Jesus actually did not become divine until His baptism when He was anointed with the Holy Spirit. So for those first 33 years, the virgin birth, the first 30 years, He was a normal man. He was still born of a virgin, but he was just a normal... Yeah. Well, I want to know what normal 12-year-old stumped the Pharisees and the scribes in the temple. Okay? So it's not that... So it's basically adoptionism. Is Later on, Jesus started out as a normal guy, but later on when, the, when he was anointed, then that's when God adopted him as a son and he became the Son of God, but it wasn't, at his, it wasn't at His birth. So here's the thing. Jesus has always been divine. He just added humanity to His deity. Nothing was subtracted. He just added humanity to what He already had as, as deity. Now, I want, to be, I want to teach something else because there is a distinction we need to understand. With that being said, there is a clear distinct, there, it's clear from scriptures that while the three persons are co-equal and co-eternal, they do have different functions. But this does not affect their oneness and being or essence as God. You can just, different functions. So for example, what function did Jesus play? Did the Father die on the cross? Jesus did. Was Jesus sent out at Pentecost to indwell our hearts or was the Holy? So they're, they're equal, they're eternal, they all share God, but they have different functions. Okay? So let's go to Ephesians chapter 1 and let's just, let's just read this great Trinitarian passage of Scripture because this is probably the Holy of Holies, I think, as far as Trinitarian teaching that Paul gives as far as the functions or the roles of what each person of the Godhead does, especially in our salvation. So um, let me just write up here the Father, because Paul's going to start with the Father, and then he's going to start with the Son, and then he's going to go to the Holy Spirit. So let's go to Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Okay? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Who's he talking about here? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's, he's talking about God the Father here, right? Okay. What has God the Father done? So let's look at this. Verse 4. Even as he what? What did the Father do? Okay, so the Father chose us. When, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, what else did He do? The Father predestined us. For what? Adoption, you could say the Father adopted us. Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Okay, so the Beloved here is the Son. So there's some things that the Father has done. The Bible really never says that Jesus the Son is the one who chose us. I mean, He chose His disciples, but really the Scripture teaches it was the Father who chose us, who predestined us, who adopted us into His family. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus does, can't do those things or that He's not able to do those things because He's God. It's just that those roles have been really defined through Scripture to the Father. Okay. Now, let's go on and talk about Jesus. Verse 7. In Him, the Beloved, we have redemption through His blood. So who are we talking about now? Jesus. So blood, cross, 
We've got redemption, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him in heaven and on earth. So this is talking about the cross, okay? So in eternity past, God the Father chose us for salvation. At a point in time, Jesus was born and He literally died on the cross. The Father didn't die on the cross. The Holy Spirit didn't die on the cross. Jesus is the one who died on the cross, okay? So what happened after Jesus died on the cross? He rose again. Then what happened after He rose again? He appeared for 40 days and then what happened? He went back up to heaven. So where's Jesus now? He's in heaven with a body at the right hand of the Father, who did He send? The Holy Spirit. Okay, so let's see what Paul says here. Verse 11, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of, his, of Him who works out all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promise to Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. What Paul's saying is that when you became a Christian, you were sealed. or you were, you, the, the Holy Spirit was, was the depositor. He was the guarantee, which means that He came and took up residence in you as the down payment that you're going to get to go to heaven. And He's always going to live in you. And so the Holy Spirit is the one who comes and causes you to be born again. He comes and lives in you. He's the one that's going to dwell in you to make sure that you get to go to heaven. Okay? So does Jesus, in a sense, dwell in you? Yes, but through the Holy Spirit because Jesus is in a body in heaven. Does the Father love you? Yes. But did the Father die on the cross for you? No. Did the Holy Spirit... So. They all share the same Godhood. They're all three are equal. They're three distinct persons, but the Scripture seems to indicate that there's different roles that the different persons of the Trinity play. And this helps us in our praying, like you said, John. So there's some things that we can praise the Father for that He's done, and there's some things we can praise the Son for, and there's some things we can praise the Holy Spirit for. I'm not trying to nitpick people's prayers, and you shouldn't nitpick people's prayers, but sometimes you can tell a person's misunderstanding of the Trinity by how they pray. And they may not even mean it. But let me give you an example. Dear Father, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Does that make any sense? Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Okay. So some people confuse the persons of the Trinity. And I'm not sitting here to nitpick prayers, but sometimes the more you understand the Trinity, the more it deepens our understanding of who God is, the more it helps us in our prayers, the more it helps us to praise Him for all three persons for what they've done in our salvation. Okay. Any questions on, on that? All right, what I want to do, what have our Baptist confessions had to say about the Trinity? I wish that we held to the 1689 London Baptist Confession, but we don't. Our doctrinal statement is the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. So um, I'm going to give you, the, like the first Baptist Confession was from 1689. And I want you to see how it's gotten um, watered down over the ages. <laughs> okay, so 1689, that's a long time ago, right? Sure. There may be a, I, I've got extra ones up here, I think. 
1689. There we go. The London Baptist Confession of 1689. Let me read to you what it says about... Let me just give you what it says about the Trinity and see if you guys... I mean, it, it's very clear. In this divine and infinite being, there are three persons, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit, one of substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite without beginning, therefore, but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by seven peculiar relative properties and personal relations, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all of our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him. That was really fast. <laughs> Deep. All right. Let's go to the New Hampshire Confession of 1833. We believe that there is one and only one living God, true and infinite intelligent spirit, whose name is Jehovah, the maker and supreme ruler of heaven and earth, that in the unity of the Godhead there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, equal in every divine perfection, executing distinct and harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. Not nothing bad with that. It's just narrowed down. Okay, let's go to the Baptist Faith and Message, 1925. Everything is basically the same as the 1833, but it adds, He is revealed to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. Sort of. Okay, let's go to the 1963 one. Everything's the same. The eternal God reveals Himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. I don't like the statement. I don't like the wording. He reveals himself to us as Father, Son, Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes. I think a modalist could agree with that. Does it say anything about three distinct persons? It says three personal attributes. Now, it's got the three persons. It's got the one God. It's got that there's no division of nature, but I don't like the term personal attributes. I think they're actually distinct persons. So I think somehow in the 1925 and the 1963, there got to be some watered-down theology there. Okay, what's our doctrinal statement? 2000. This is the Southern Bab. This is the current Southern Baptist faith and message. Everything's pretty much the same. The eternal triune God reveals Himself to us as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. They have not changed it. And I'm not saying what we believe in our doctrinal statement is wrong. I just don't think it's precise enough. Now, I don't know if we should go back to the 1689, but, but notice what the 1689 says. In this divine and infinite being, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity. Um, let's just keep going down. All infinite, without beginning, therefore but one God who's not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. They expand upon that, but they've got, I think they've got a fuller doctrine of the Trinity there. They've got one God, three persons, co-equal, co-eternal. Somehow our modern day, um, it's interesting how the doctrine of the Trinity has gotten a little bit more. So let me ask you a question. With our Baptist faith and message 2000, could T.D. Jakes agree with it? the way it's written. He probably could a little bit. Personal attributes. 
But, but if you were to ask him, are they three distinct persons? That would be, he would probably say, no, they're modalists. I'm a modalist. Let's talk about the Athanasian Creed. It's your last sheet. I'm not going to go through this whole thing, but this is, this came about in 8500. And this is probably the best um, definition that's been out on the Trinity. And, well, let's just read it because I think it's good. It's old language, but I think it's the best definition. Okay, now, by the way, remember, Trinity's not in the Bible. It's a Latin term that Athanasius used to define what the Bible teaches. Triunity, Trinity, three, three and oneness, however you want to, whatever you want to say. But here's what he said. Here's what the Athanasian Creed says. That we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit is all one, the glory equal, and the majesty co-eternal. What's that teaching? Distinct persons, but still the same eternality. Okay? Such as the Father is, such as the Son, and such as the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Spirit incomprehensible. What's that teaching? The eternality of the three persons. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Spirit eternal, and yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. And also there are not three incomprehensibles, not three uncreated, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, and the Holy Spirit almighty, and yet they are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet they are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son Lord, and the Holy Spirit Lord, and yet not three lords, but one Lord. For as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge each person by himself to be both God and Lord, so we are also forbidden by Catholic religion to say that there are three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made, not created, but begotten. The Holy Spirit is of the Father, neither made nor created, but nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And in the Trinity, none is before or after another, none is greater or lesser than another, but all three persons are co-equal together and co- are co-eternal together and co-equal. So then all things, as as the four said, the unity and Trinity and the Trinity uses to be worshipped. Pretty comprehensive, right? It's like we're going to say it 5,000 ways to make sure that you you get what we mean. And so the Athanasian Creed says, and so here's what I would do. You know, I would stick the Athanasian Creed in front of somebody like a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or a Oneness Pentecostal and say, hey, can you sign off on this? They cannot. Um, and so I think it's important, the old creeds and confessions that have been around historically, not that they're scripture, okay, it's not scripture, they're not binding, but they're from people that are a whole lot smarter than us that have thought through these things that have put down in writing what the Bible teaches and it stood the test of time over thousands of years. So it's not equal with scripture, Scripture. it's a good way to kind of put a commentary on some of these core doctrines, Okay. So we've got about 15 minutes left. Unless you want to get out early, what questions do you guys have tonight in relation to these things? And I may not be able to answer all of them because I don't know everything there is to know about these cults. I know just enough to be dangerous, but not enough to be an expert. Questions? Who's they? 
the Mormons. Because do they believe that God the Father then created the Well, universe? that's the question I asked these Mormons. I said, well, who created God? Because he's an exalted man. And I said, somebody had to create him. If you go far enough back, somebody had to create the exalted man before he became a man. Who's that God that created God? And they're like, now, wait a minute. They were like, I don't, I've never thought about that before. And I'm like, you, I mean, you've got to go back to the unmoved mover is what um, Thomas Aquinas, I think, called it. If you go far enough back, there's got to be the one being that started everything. And so their theory or their teaching is there was a man who learned how to be a god through exaltation became that god. And he's the god of this universe. Did he create this universe? Is there like another universe to them? Well, there's these spirit babies and, and you get to populate your own planet out there when you, when you die. And so you can become a god yourself. I'd probably need to come and talk about the... There's, there's the Mormon law of eternal progression that shows how all this stuff works. And without it being in front of me, I, I don't know all the ins and outs of it. But that's a great question, what they believe about creation. So they believe that God had relations with Mary. Yes. So God the Father with Mary. He's a physical so body. Married. So what is the point? I will tell you... If, you know what I'll tell you? <laughs> Have you guys... There's, a, there's an old movie from the 80s called The Godmakers. And it's a movie about, um, it's a cartoon that teaches Mormon theology. And the way they show it, it's like, it looks like Hanna-Barbera, like cartoons. And here's what it has. It has a knock on the door. This cartoon man comes and knocks on the door. It's God. He opens the door, and it's Mary. And she invites him in. It's implied that they go in and have sex. And it's, that's how Jesus was created. And God had this big grin on his face. And Mary says, come on in. And, I don't know. Yes. This Carlos. it sounds pretty patriarchal. I mean, this is what happens to all the women. I mean, I'm mean, yes. assuming that men get the planet. Yes, like, yes. So where do the women go? Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing, <laughs> Carla. Here's here's the thing in Mormon theology. As a woman, you really have nothing going for you unless you marry a Mormon guy. You're you go on the coattails of your Mormon husband. That's why it's important that you get married in the temple to a Mormon husband, and you put out a lot of babies so that you can somehow like rule with your husband, but you have no real identity in and of yourself. It may have gotten a little bit more progressive. How but women that don't marry a Mormon they, they don't get as much of a... There's three, there's, three, there's three levels of heaven, so they, may, they, don't get the highest, they don't get the highest level of heaven. They get like a lower so station. Christians don't go to heaven. If you what? Yeah, your husband chooses. So, so I will say this, Carla. It, Mormonism is very patriarchal. It's very um, misogynist, and it's very, um, yeah, it is. So, yeah, there's not a lot of hope for Christians. There's not a lot of hope for Mormon women to have an identity in Christ. Well, they don't believe in the right. I mean, just to have what we, what you as Christian women have, like whether you're married or not. My identity is in Christ. My salvation's in Christ. He is the one who I'm serving. And whether I have a husband or not, I know I'm going to heaven because I have Christ. They can't say that at all. Do because they even talk about the Holy Spirit? Not much. It's more like a force. It's more like a you know like a power or a like an energy. 
More like Yoda. Midi chlorians floating around there. You know, it's just. Yeah. Machine created enough ruckus that wow. gave them back to you, but then they had to move away from here. Yeah, I've heard stories. Here's the thing that's kind of kind of discouraging, especially with like young people. I can't tell you. I'm not a lot, but I know of a lot of um, people that have married or gotten a relationship with a Mormon, thinking that it was just the same as Christian. And then you get in a marriage, and it's got really bad implications because you're unequally yoked. Um, and then it's hard to, it's just hard to navigate that. So, um, anyway, any other questions? Did you have a question, John? You like well, you? Kind of back to this God and Mary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well, you know, the whole, the whole reason, you know, Christ went to the cross sacrifice but because he was sinless yeah and became sin for us right? yeah so i mean if he was born out of a relation that he was born out yeah. of sin and was not sinless so yeah. none of that makes any sense yeah well, when we get to the atonement, when we talk about the atonement, well, I don't want to do it. I mean, it's hard. I mean, we can get everything in one, one Wednesday night, but we're kind of going to kind of go stage by stage. So when we get to the cross and the atonement, what we believe about the cross, then we'll compare it to like what they believe about what Jesus did and the life of Jesus. Because we're going to have a whole session on the deity and humanity of Christ and what the different heresies are that believe about. Some of this will be a repeat, but I just can't give everything to you on one night. So, so here's kind of where we're going. We're going to look at like tonight we did the Trinity Next week, we're going to do some attributes of God the Father. Then we're going to do Jesus the Son. Then we're going to do the Holy Spirit. Then we're going to talk about the cross. Then we're going to talk about salvation, um, the different things. And then we're going to talk about possibly like the human, like what, what they believe about people, humans, the sinfulness of humans. Um, and then we'll talk about some other things before. I don't know. We'll figure it out. That's kind of where we're going. So, any other questions? Comments or snide remarks. One thing I, I do want to share this as I'm preparing my message for this Sunday. Um, one, one of the Paul's. I don't want to preach it because you're like I don't want to hear it twice. But um, one of Paul's. Paul is giving one of the main themes of First Thessalonians is Paul's giving thanks, and what he's giving thanks for is he says I I constantly give thanks to you as I remember you in my prayers, constantly remembering. Your labor of love, your work of faith, and your steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's giving thanks for the spiritual growth and the salvation of this church in Thessalonica. And it got me thinking about how thankful I am that, for my church family, that you guys have a passion and a heart to learn, to grow, that I see evidences of salvation and that God is really doing a work. And and it just made me wonder how often do we... Stop and give thanks to God, not only for our salvation, but for what God is doing in others around us. And one of the key terms in First Thessalonians is brothers and sisters. It's used 19 times. And so as brothers and sisters in Christ, are we thankful not only for our salvation, but for the evidence of God's salvation in each other? So I would challenge you this week in preparation for the sermon and just to be thinking about how can I be, how can I be thankful for what God's doing in my church family? Think about that. It's, you, have to, you have to know, kind of have to open your eyes and, and look. You can't just be all like, oh, it's all about me. You've got to be thinking about your church family and how God, and like your daughter, she's getting baptized this Sunday. That's like, give thanks because that's like a great moment that you can 
that we can give thanks for God's grace. Because you guys got baptized, what, two years ago? And now she's old enough to make it her decision. And so, um, I mean, that's that's reason to give thanks as a church family, that, that young people are, are growing in their faith and, and getting baptized. So anyway, 